Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Sarah Jacoby about her recent book, Love and Liberation, Autobiographical Writings of the Tibetan Buddhist Visionary Sera Khandro, published by Columbia University Press in 2014. This book focuses on the extraordinary life and times of the Tibetan laywoman Sera Khandro and uses her story to examine a number of important issues in the study of Tibetan Buddhism. Siddhakandra was born in 1892 to well-off parents in relatively cosmopolitan Lhasa, but ran away to eastern Tibet at the age of 15, hoping to fulfill her religious aspirations. After enduring various hardships, she eventually became the consort of a monk at the age of 20. After a tumultuous nine years, during which she was subjected to the ill will of many residents of the monastery where she resided, and during which time she bore two children, she moved in with the lama under whom she had originally studied, a man whom she considered her original teacher whose consort she became, attaining spiritual liberation in the process, and whose biography she would eventually write after his death. After three years, her spiritual partner died, and Zedekandro spent the last 16 years of her life teaching widely throughout eastern Tibet and engaged in writing. She died in 1940. Jacobi's study is based in large part on two previously unexamined sources, a biography that Zedekandro wrote of her male teacher and Zedekandro's own autobiography. There are very few pre-1950s Tibetan primary sources authored by women, and these two documents allowed Jacobi a unique view of a period that is usually seen through male eyes. In her discussion of Serekandro's writings, Jacobi locates the aforementioned autobiography in the context of Tibetan literature, on the one hand, and explains autobiography's role in the construction of religious identity in Tibet, on the other. Related to this issue is what Jacobi calls autobiographical ventriloquy, claims that one makes about one's own spiritual attainments by putting words in the mouth of another character. In the case at hand, Serekandro records conversations that she has with Dakinis, in which these celestial beings, in response to Serekandro's expressions of doubt about her own progress along the Buddha's path, assert that she has, in fact, attained a high level of spiritual attainment. In addition to her interactions with Dakinis, Serekandro established relationships with the semi-legendary Yeshe Tsogyal, and with autochthonist deities in eastern Tibet. Drawing on the theory of relational selfhood, which describes a process by which an autobiographical subject's identity is constructed through that subject's depiction of his or her relationships uh, with other social actors, Jacobi shows that Serekandro's own identity as a treasure revealer depended on the relationships she had with both those in her immediate environment, for example, these local deities, and those in the mythic past, for example, Yeshe Tsogyal. In this way, religious legitimacy, uh, at least in the case of Serekandro, depended on both local and pan-Tibetan associations. In the final two chapters of the book, Jacobi discusses Serekandro's role as a consort. She looks at the various ways in which Serekandro herself understood such practices and, and the ways in which she used men as consorts for practices aimed at furthering her own spiritual progress. This close analysis provides the reader with a much more nuanced view of Tibetan Buddhist attitudes towards sexual practices. 
And in the final chapter, Jacobi shows that while we usually think of such practices as thoroughly impersonal and soteriological in character, in the case at hand, Serechandro's own feelings of affection for her partner, Durime Ozer, cannot be easily disentangled from her belief that consort relationships were soteriological means to a spiritual end. Hence the title of the book, Love and Liberation. This book will be of particular value to those with interests in religious autobiography, the construction of religious identity, gender and religion, the relationship between theory and practice in Tibetan Buddhism, and Tibet at the turn of the 20th century. However, even readers without those specific interests will enjoy Jacobi's well-written and captivating narrative presentation of Serekanjo's life, a rare glimpse into the world of a female Tibetan religious virtuoso. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Sarah Jacoby, and we're going to be talking about her recent book, Love and Liberation, Autobiographical Writings of the Tibetan Buddhist Visionary Sera Khandro, uh, published by, the, by Columbia University Press in 2014. Sarah Jacoby is Assistant Professor of Religion in the Department of Religious Studies at Northwestern University. Prior to this monograph, she co-edited a volume with Antonio Terone entitled Buddhism Beyond the Monastery, Tantric Practices and Their Performers in Tibet and the Himalayas, which was published by Brill in 2009, and last year saw the release of Buddhism, Introducing the Buddhist Experience, which she co-authored with Donald Mitchell, and which was published by Oxford. She's also published in a number of peer-reviewed journals and has won a number of teaching awards. So, Sarah Jacobi, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, maybe where you're from and how you came to the study of Buddhism, of Tibet, uh, of women within Tibetan Buddhism. Sure. Um, I'm from Boston and uh, pretty far from Tibet or (laughs) in eastern Tibet. So um, I don't even think I heard of Tibet probably until I was in high school or even college. So... um, I think this all started when I was an undergraduate and I took a class out of curiosity called the history of Indian Buddhism at Yale. I remember the professor was professor Stanley Weinstein and I was fascinated by many aspects of Buddhism in particular, the idea of selflessness, non-duality. I think it struck me as different. So a lot of the, the elements that have attracted people to Buddhism are the same for me. This idea of a rational religion, mm-hmm. something that helped people to understand human suffering. Um, these are the things that initially fascinated me, but um, it, it crystallized as an undergraduate when I did a junior semester abroad program with the school for international training based in Brattleboro, Vermont. It was a Tibetan studies program, mm-hmm. which if you look at the broader field of Tibetology in the United States, you'll find that a large percentage of us did the same undergraduate junior semester abroad program. Hmm. Um, and the the main um, professor of this program, Hubert de Clear, um, and actually the year I did it, the other um, professor was uh, Professor Andrew Quintman, who's now um, at Yale. They did a fabulous job and, and going to Tibet myself as an undergraduate completely opened my world um, and inspired me to want to learn more. 
Hmm. Oh, and I should also mention about studying women. Um, I was a women's studies major as an undergraduate at Yale. So the first interest was really looking at women and gender and representations of women in literature and history. That was um, my initial academic focus. And then I became interested in Buddhism and sought out ways to merge these two topics in my research. I see. So how did you come then to focus specifically on Serakandro? And um, this might be a good time to just also say a few words about who she was. Um, her, and her dates are 1892 to 1940. Sure. Um, I was fortunate in that all of this also happened when I was an undergraduate um, on this very uh, study abroad program that I mentioned. I did some research in a town in Parping, outside of Kathmandu in Nepal. I was interested in, I may still remember the title of that little uh, study I did as an undergraduate. It was called How Nyingma Laywomen Integrate Their Roles as Wife, Mother, and Dharma Practitioner, um, which is funny because I was 20 years old then, um, but actually my (laughs) interests have Continued along that very same line, Nyingma is one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and I was interested to see um, in this school um, more women who were not nuns, who had significant roles. Um, They were were wives and mothers of important um, religious leaders in some cases, but they were also individually powerful as spiritual practitioners in their own right, and that juxtaposition fascinated me at the time. Mm. In order to study this, I went out to Parping outside of Kathmandu, as I mentioned, because I wanted to study Chatra Rinpoche's daughters. Chatra Sangye Dorje Rinpoche is the oldest leading hierarch of the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism. He's now over 100 years old um, and still living. Um, And his daughters, in fact, were my initial interest in that community. I interviewed them at the time, and and in getting to know him and that community more over the following several years, I came back to visit after I graduated from college. I realized that one of Chatra Rinpoche's gurus was a woman, was Sarah Kondro. Hmm. Uh, and I heard this from him and from his disciples in, in Parping. And I became fascinated to know who she was. Um, this was a very slow, long process because Chaturambache told me early on, if you want to talk to me, then you need to learn Tibetan. Um, and this was something that he told, I, I think, just about every non-Tibetan student that the discussion would be in Tibetan, so you have to start um, in that way. And so learning Tibetan became a priority for me. Um, and this was important also because as I developed interest in studying Sarah Kondro, I realized um, all of her manuscripts had, were still in, in manuscript form in Tibetan and hadn't been translated into English. And so it became an inspiration um, and an aspiration to introduce her um, in the English language to others. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Kondro had a fascinating life. Um, 
I guess to to really explain, I started out wanting to read her autobiography because I was interested in these academic issues we talked about, about gender and mm-hmm. women's representation and historical sources and religious lineages. But what I found when I invested the time in reading and studying her life and, and speaking with people, um, very old people who knew her or... Um, lineage members who remembered, recalled stories about her. Uh, What I found was that she had lived a really just fascinating life and that she wrote about it with a great deal of detail and candor. So um, pretty early on, the initial impulse to study her just turned into a fascination all of its own. Um, She was born in Lhasa in 1892. Her father was a Mongolian political leader. At times, she called him Chinese, but she also described his ethnicity as Mongolian. Mm -hmm. I think the Chinese characteristic represents his position as an official in the Qing government, Um, And her mother, she describes her as um, a woman from the Lhasa nobility, a Tibetan. Um, So she has this sort of bicultural upbringing, but um, upper class in Lhasa. Um, And she describes growing up in a four-story estate, which is also characteristic of um, an aristocratic family. Hmm. And she describes being pressured to get married. Her father started arranging her marriage, according to her autobiography, when she was 10 years old. Um, it, it never came to pass because she escaped her household before that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was also uh, pressured by her father to study Chinese characters before she would be allowed to study Tibetan, which is also very curious and very unusual for early 20th century Lhasa and for women's education at that time, um, and points to a sort of bicultural upbringing. I see. So she uh, she writes of this of a few major crises in her early life. One was her mother's death when she was 12 um, and the deep grief that she felt after that. Um, Subsequently, her father's remarriage. And this all happens before um, a pivotal moment in her autobiography when a group of traveling pilgrims arrive seeking shelter at her brother's home. Um, And among them is Drimeoser, who would later become her main uh, religious guru and her consort. Drimeoser was the son of Jujum Lingpa, um, a 19th century uh, figure who was one of the most famous visionaries of his time in Eastern Tibet. Um, so he was from a sort of uh, very important family, uh, religious family in Eastern Tibet. She ended up um, leaving her father's, uh, her family's home and um, joining their pilgrimage troop. And she never went home again. I see. So that was, that was how she left Lhasa then at the age of 15 or That's 15 right. or 16 at uh, 15, I think. Yes. Okay. So, so, so thanks for the, um, that. I just want to, before we get farther into her life story, um, I just want to um, mention a few other things. I mean, the first one is uh, just uh, 
to, uh, for listeners that the sources you're using, you're using two main sources. Uh, one is the autobiography, her own autobiography, which, um, and then also a biography she wrote about her teacher, uh, Jime Uzer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these you, you say, um, are still in manuscript form, correct? That's right. Yes. Okay. And, um, you, in the introduction, before you sort of get into her life story, you uh, you talk about her own autobiography, which is very unusual, you say, for a woman to produce an autobiography, and particularly one of this length and detail. Um, you put it in two larger contexts, and one is that of the uh, li- Tibetan literary genres of Namtar and Rangnam, if I'm pronouncing them correctly. Right. Um, and then the other... And then in, in addition, you talk about it in the context, sort of theoretical context of autobiographical, autobiographical theory more broadly. Um, so I was just wondering if you could mention sort of um, for listeners how, where in the sort of Tibetan literary context um, we should understand these or her own autobiographical, her own autobiography bi- to be. Um, sure. That wasn't a very clear way, way of asking the question. Sorry, but. So, okay, well, I will explain to, first of all, you asked me, are these still in manuscript form? And I, um, I just unequivocally answered yes. I should, cl- I should sort of clarify. Um, Sarah Kondro's biography of her teacher, Jimayosar, and her autobiography remained unpublished in Tibetan in manuscript form until 2009. So this has now changed. Um, there are now two, published versions of Sarah Kondro's autobiography in Tibetan. Um, And so there's a renewed interest within Tibet um, in Sarah Kondro as a writer from the Eastern Tibetan region. She wrote her autobiography and the biography of her teacher in um, a regional dialect of Tibetan called Golok. Hmm. Um, And so there are many um, colloquialisms that, would be found in spoken language more commonly than written language in her writing. Um, this is partly a genre thing in that biography also often contains a lot of dialogue, which could be written in a um, colloquial manner, but it may also reflect the fact that she didn't have a monastic education um, as a woman who had never been a nun um, she didn't have a formal Tibetan literary education. This may also have influenced her writing style, um, although she certainly was someone who um, read widely and was widely self-educated. Um, mm-hmm. So she was a very literate and erudite person, especially towards the middle of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's one edition of um the biography she wrote of Dremeoser, which I found it's, it's a reproduction of it is housed at the library of Tibetan works and archives in Dramsala. I've only ever found one manuscript edition of that work. Um, and I found that reproduced all over um, Eastern Tibet and in Tibetan diaspora communities in South Asia, Sarah Kondo's autobiography. So this biography, she wrote it first of, of Dremeoser and she started writing Dremeoser, her teacher, her teacher's biography um, shortly after he died uh, in 1924. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, the 
the impetus to write this 248 folio biography was one of grief and of mm-hmm. remembrance and recollecting her guru's life. Mm. She signed this biography as having come from the inspiration of Dakinis, which are a kind of female goddess figure that appears pervasively in Tibetan religion. And if you want, we can talk more about that. Yeah. But, but the point I'm trying to make here is she deferred authorial intention. She said that she received it through a kind of divine revelation, not that she authored it herself. Um, this is the biography of Dremiosar. Um, 11 pages, 11 folios before the end of this biography, when she's describing his funeral and her participation in it, she switches from the narrator's voice being a third person voice to first person. So all of a sudden, um, 11 pages before the end, you have, I did this. I got up and placed the statue there. You have this I that pops up in the text. Hmm. Shortly after this, I'm basing these years on the colophons for these texts. Shortly after this, she wrote her own autobiography, which turned out to be almost twice the length of the biography of Dremioser, um, of more than 400 folios. And in some sense, it seems to me that her autobiographical impulse started in the process of writing this biography of Dremioser and then transformed into a narrative about herself. And these are preserved in two separate manuscripts. Um, there's a, I should also add, I think you're asking about um, sort of how these place in the larger Tibetan literary world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And- I, I mean, on, on the, um, yeah, I don't want to get too much into the detail of, you know, literary style and, genre, but sort of more, what's the, I I just want listeners to get an idea of, you know, how normal is this? Is she sort of following an established model? Is she departing from an established model? Um, Sort of what's the significance of the fact that she wrote an autobiography? Sure. Um, So there are thousands of biographies in the Tibetan literary corpus and many hundreds of autobiographies. However, less than 1% of those are written by or about women. Mm -hmm. Um, So the subject of Tibetan biography is by and large elite um, religious, male religious virtuosos who were often monastics, not always. Um, So she was fitting, her writing fits into paradigms of Tibetan biography. In particular, you can see a strong influence from um, a very popular hagiography in Tibetan literature, the hagiography of Yeshitsogyal, who Mm -hmm. is, I guess you could call her the preeminent female saint of Tibet. She's the consort of Padmasambhava, who's credited with introducing um, Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century. Um, There's a very famous life story of Yeshitsogyal, and you see elements of that woven in Sarah Kondro's um, life story. And by that, I don't mean to say that she somehow plagiarized another work. That's, that's really not um, 
salient in this context. Um, she was perceived to be the incarnation of Yeshetsogyal. So their identities merge on a religious level, as well as what we could say, uh, we see a kind of intertextuality between the hagiography of Yeshetsogyal and the autobiography of Sarah Kondro. So you could see her as a kind of divine inspiration for Sarah Kondro. Um, as well as a sort of cultural resource for what it means to write the story of a woman who attains enlightenment, of the narrative, um, the storyline, if you will, of, of how that would be written. Okay, great. Thanks for that. So I want to get into chapter two now, but I just want to give a thumbnail sketch of, of Sarah Kondro's life first. So basically she's in Lhasa um, until age 15, um, and her parents are specifically her father's sort of steering her towards a more sort of, uh, secular, um, uh, future. And she has these religious aspirations. So she escapes at 50, at age 15 and to, with these pilgrims and goes to Golok, which is this area, um, in, uh, sort of on the border of modern day Sichuan, which was at the time, neither, uh, controlled by the Qing nor by the sort of Tibetan government in Lhasa. And she's and from age twenty to twenty nine, she's uh, lives with this um, with this Gada Gelse of whom she's a consort. And then age twenty nine to thirty two, she goes back and lives with her main teacher, Adrime Uzer. And at what well, when she's thirty two, he dies, and then she writes his bio- biography. And later on, um, and she also moves to Sarah Monastery at that mm-hmm. time, from which she gets her name. Mm-hmm. So. That's a incomplete but <laughs> very uh, rough uh, sketch of her life for listeners. Um, so, but moving on to chapter two, here you focus on uh, Serakandro's treasure revelation during her time in Golok, and central to this chapter is this concept of relational selfhood, which refers to sort of the relationship between the autobiographical subject and the actors in the social world in which the autobiographical subject lives, and it seems like it also has to do with um, the autobiographical subject um, constructing his or her identity in relation to these others. Mm -hmm. So um, would you explain what sort of relationships we're talking about here and why they're of such importance in the autobiographical writings of uh, Tibetan treasure revealers? And also, if, sorry, this is two questions, and could you just start by saying two or three words just about what treasure revelation is in Tibetan Buddhism? Sure. Um, treasure revelation is a system of ongoing Buddhist scriptural revelation, um, scriptural and also um, we could call it um, artifacts as well. Um, so it the treasure tradition is primarily um, affiliated with the Nyingma school, the ancient school of Buddhism, although you find it in Bun as well. Um, and it is the treasure tradition stems from Padmasambhava or one of his uh, peers in Imperial Tibet from the seventh to the ninth centuries. They, um, and usually Padmasambhava himself, gave a teaching and concealed it for the benefit of future disciples, according to the tradition. Um, Treasure revealers are incarnations of Padmasambhava's original 25 disciples, one of whom was Yeshe Tsogyal. (laughs) Yeshe Tsogyal was his Tibetan consort, and she's credited in the treasure tradition with 
memorizing, remembering his teachings and concealing them for the future of um, Tibet. And so Sarah Kondro came to be understood as an incarnation of Yeshe Tsogyal, which gave her a kind of position as a treasure revealer. Um, mm-hmm. And so tre- the treasure tradition, I, I initially called it a tradition of scriptural revelation. So the discovery of um, scrolls containing a symbolic language, which is then revealed um, and transcribed into ordinary Tibetan language by the revealer, but it's not just scriptures. It's also religious artifacts such as statues or um, ritual implements that treasure revealers discover in specific sacred places in Tibet. Um, So that's a brief synopsis of a, a larger tradition of revelation, which begins in about the 11th century in Tibet and continues up to the present day. Um, And relational selfhood is the theme of the second chapter of love and liberation, because the process of discovering a treasure involves a whole system of relationships with not only Padmasambhava and Yeshe Tsogyal as um, the sort of divine couple, if you will, from whom these revelations originate. But Mm -hmm. also, after their concealment, there's, in the treasure tradition, there is an understanding that these treasures are guarded by protectors um, who are sometimes land deities, deities who are associated with sacred mountains in Tibet predominantly. Um, and they're sometimes dakinis, these female um, divinities. But these protector spirits hold on to the treasure until the appropriate revealer comes to discover it. So there's a multi-phased process of discovery involving the treasure revealer realizing that they are a treasure revealer. So there's a lot of autobiographical writing about the sort of process of introspection. Mm. Um, also, that particular treasure revealer has to go to the right place at the right time and be accompanied by the right people. So there's a whole network of things, um, of connections that have to come together for a successful revelation. So in some sense, it's predestined in the pronouncements, um, the prophetic pronouncements of Padmasambhava as much as it is contingent on the everyday realities in the present moment of the treasure revealer. And it's this dynamic between predestination and the contingencies of the everyday that, that you find in many biographical writings of treasure revealers. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to pull out in the second chapter, however, is that it tends to be when academics write about the tradition of Tibetan treasure revelation, that they see it as a kind of, as I just said, scriptural production, um, a system of propagating Buddhism, of introducing new Buddha voiced scriptures mm-hmm. or sacred objects into um typically the Tibetan cultural area, although there are some treasure revealers who are operating in the U S or something like that, but that's a very modern, um, recent phenomena. But, um, 
What I wanted to do in this chapter was to look at the ways in which this tradition is really rooted in regional affiliations. So I try to pull out both trans-regional identifications that Sarah Condro makes, such as with Padmasambhava and Yeshitsu Gyal, who are very important in her visionary experiences, in her writing, in her dreams, and so forth. But also this the sort of intermediaries on the local level that are equally as important to her identity as a treasure revealer. Um, and those are affiliated with the sacred mountains in Golok. Um, the Mountains in this region are inhabited by um, a kind of deity that we could call a land deity or a mountain deity. And those tend to be the protectors of treasures. They also tend to be the sites at which treasures are discovered. Um, what fascinates me about this is we're not just talking about some arcane spiritual tradition of revelation, we're also talking about the way in which political and social power is mapped on a mundane level in um, Golok society, because the regional political leaders in Golok were considered to be the descendants of the mountain deities. So if you think about it in an environmental metaphor, the, the watershed of a particular mountain region is mm -hmm. controlled by the deity of that mountain. And the people who live within that valley propitiate to their local mountain. And they do that through ritual intermediaries. And treasure revealers are very important ritual intermediaries. Um, so we're talking about social and political power. And we're talking about spiritual power all wrapped up together. And that tends to be lost or forgotten when we're sitting in Chicago, like I am now talking mm -hmm. revelation. Yeah. So, so, so then her sort of her identity and specifically her, uh, Sarah Condro as treasure reveal was sort of, um, as she constructs this through her autobiography was done through reference to both local, um, sort of local factors like these uh, Golok mountain deities, as well as sort of trans-regional elements like um, these sort of mythical figures like, uh, um, well, regardless of their historicity, I mean, um, uh, mythical and sort of quality, uh, like Padmasambhava. Yes, that's okay. right. All right. So, um, great. So, Moving on then um, to the, in, in chapter three, you sort of focus on Sarah Condro's um, interactions, conversations with uh, Dakini or Dakinis. I don't know what the plural would be in English, but um, so you sort of mentioned Dakini before, but this is a very central theme in your book. So could you just please begin by explaining what a Dakini is, or at least what it is in Tibetan Buddhism and maybe what the, um, and also what the relationship between Dakini and autobiographical writing in Tibetan Buddhism is? Sure. Um, that's a very big question. Sure. Sorry. I'm going to try to uh, um, summarize here. Sure. Uh, well, like a, like a one-sentence definition of Dakini is fine for... I mean, most people studying, familiar with Buddhism, of course, have some idea of what it is. But, you know, Dakini in Japan are, you know, obviously very different than what they are in Indian Buddhism and so forth. 
Right. Well, that would be interesting to know more about uh, for me. But Dakinis are notoriously elusive and ubiquitous in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, they may have their origins in um, South Asian indigenous goddess cults. Um, some people will claim they go all the way back to Indus Valley civilizations to millennia BCE. There's very little evidence for this, but we do know that they appear in um, Panini's Sanskrit grammar, probably composed in the late 4th century BCE. They're later incorporated into um, Indian Tantric Buddhism, um, during the 6th to the 7th centuries of the Common Era, we find them um, serving forms of Shiva and other deities um, as well in um, non-Buddhist Indian Tantric traditions. They travel along with Indian Buddhism to Tibet, um, where they are translated as Kondroma, which means sky-going woman. Some people translate that more eloquently as uh, sky dancer or something like that, but it literally means ka, sky, dro, go, and ma is the female, the woman, female particle. Um, so Dakinis in Tibetan Buddhism can be either um, gurus, like a, a religious master, a Buddha. Mm -hmm. They can be um, tutelary deities, deities that like Buddhas or Bodhisattvas that you would perform um, sadhana, you would, you would um, envision in your meditative visualizations. Um, or they can be humans. Um, they can be, you know, the word chondroma in a mundane sense often refers to the wife of a Lama of a male religious figure, because in Tibetan Buddhism, you have both a monastic tradition and a non-monastic tradition. Mm -hmm. So there are some um, religious masters who have consorts or, or are married, um, and the wife would be called the chondro or the chondroma. Um, so there's, but, you know, um, they're associated with female and the feminine on many levels, but in their most abstract form, um, Dakinis are some symbols of insight or the realization of emptiness, um, the fact that persons and phenomena are empty of an independent and separate um, existence. Mm. So they also refer to a kind of internal non-dual awareness within um, a, a male or a female's mind. Um, so they have an abstract dimension as well, which is partly why they're so elusive. Yeah. Great. So, so what is Sarah Kondro's relationship with Dakini then? I mean, she has these conversations with Dakini. What did Dakini say to her and what's, how are they important in her life? Dakinis are centrally important in her, um, in her autobiography. She recounts having these detailed visionary interactions with them um, in her dreams and also in her waking visions that she experienced as part of her meditative practice. Um, this is a common feature in Tibetan biographies and autobiographies, but 
in some senses, Sarah Condro seems to have longer conversations <laughs> with these figures than is common in at least the uh, biographies I've studied in her milieu, which all happen to be written by men. It's difficult to make comments about gender and writing style in the context of Tibet because we have so few female authored works that it becomes um, an untenable stereotype to make any um, definitive statements about women's writing or men's writing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I try to keep observations on the more sort of um, micro level than that. Um, But what we find in Sarah Condor's writing is that Dakinis are her greatest inspiration. They're constantly encouraging her. They appear in moments where she's down and depressed about her life. There's this one pivotal vision she has when she's a child. The first time a Dakini appears and intervenes in her life, she's fed up with studying Chinese. She doesn't want to do it anymore. She throws her books into the river and she writes, she was considering offing herself as well and just jumping into the river and ending it all. And then this terrifying Dakini appeared before her holding a knife and threatening her and terrified her so much. She ran away from the river's edge and, um, And so they appear, they're not always these beautiful, happy figures, ethereal, um, you know, bliss bestowing goddesses, but they are protectors. They're inspiring her to pursue her religious path Mm -hmm. and they're resisting her own or others insecurities about whether she can do this as a woman. Um, So they keep pushing her forward. Okay. So... Um, now, there's that. So, so there's that straightforward relationship. But you also, and, and um, in addition to that, you <clears throat> you talk about, and this is, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the themes of this uh, in this chapter, recurrent, re- recurring themes in this chapter is um, the way in which Sarah Condro is making uh, s- assertions about her own spiritual attainments and sort of qualities through others' voices, um, specifically through the voices of Takini and Lamas. And you call this autobiographical ventriloquy. Um, And so I'm wondering sort of how this works in her autobiography um, and what's the significance of Sarah Condro asserting um, sort of um, claiming a certain sort of spiritual attainment through the voices of others. Right. So this this is one um, topic that relates to the research of Janet Gyatso in her book, Apparitions of the South. Janet Gyatso spearheaded the study of Tibetan autobiography. And in that work, she discusses this characteristic feature of Tibetan autobiography and that um, there's a kind of diffidence that Tibetan autobiographers have. Um, You can generally tell whether a work is written by a disciple in the sense that it's a biography instead of an autobiography um, based on whether the subject is doing um, lauded things like whether they're discovering, whether they're getting enlightened and discovering all these amazing revelations um, and they're just the most brilliant omniscient human ever. When you hear that, it's written by a disciple. Yeah. Um, the characteristic feature of an autobiography is a very humble kind of rhetoric, a deferral of that kind of um, lauding. 
and um, a denial of being this great person. So this is accomplished. This autobiographical diffidence is accomplished in various ways in, in different authors' writings. But in Sarah Condro's writings, other voices tell her she's great and she constantly denies their assertions. But the effect on the reader is that it presents her as both lauded by other important figures and humble, mm. um, as humble as someone who was truly that amazing would really be, if that makes any sense. Um, sure. So Dakinis are the, and, and also some very important male religious hierarchs in her social milieu um, are the primary voices in her autobiography that tell her she's, she's really an incarnation of Yeshe Tsogyal or Shiwa George Tso, an incarnation of Yeshe Tsogyal. She's, she's really meant to be a treasure revealer. Um, and all these very strongly encouraging, lauding words are all spoken in others' voices. I call this um, uh, I think of this sort of as a narrative device, which I call autobiographical ventriloquy. Um, it's not really as much of a judgment of whether this is true or not from an emic or traditional faith perspective. Sarah Condro writes this way because these visions really happen to her and they really tell her these things and she's just recording them. Mm-hmm. So my interest is not actually whether they really happened this way or didn't really happen this way. But rather thinking about why she chose to craft an autobiographical narrative in this way, because whether or not they happened or didn't happen, she still makes um, an intentional effort to portray her life in this way. And that's what I find most fascinating. And so um, she ends up not having to say anything positive about herself Mm -hmm. in her own words. And one of the really interesting features of these conversations that I highlight in the third chapter of the book is about the female body or being a woman in general. Um, She's constantly bringing up her femaleness as a, and talking about it in derogatory terms, this can be difficult from a contemporary feminist perspective to want to read Sarah Condro and hold her up as an exemplar of what it means to be a strong woman. And mm. her saying all these things about how she's a lowly woman and can't do this and can't do that. Um, but that's only half the story. These are dialogues, they're conversations in her writing. And every single time she says something like that, the person she's speaking with rejects the claim and gives her examples of women in Tibetan history, especially Yishitzogyal, but others as well, um, who have gone on to do great things. So this, I think, is a skillful way of dealing with one of the primary obstacles that really was an issue in her everyday life. Mm-hmm. And that's that she was one of the very few women to be recognized as a treasure revealer, one of the very few women to write an autobiography, which in itself is, a, I guess you could say, a kind of self-aggrandizing thing to do because the genre of Tibetan autobiography is, it's not just the story of one's personality as it is in a modern American context or something like that. Tibetan autobiography is the story of one's spiritual liberation. So to write that about yourself is to claim, in some sense, that you are spiritually realized. Uh, I see, yeah. 
Um, so she did that very, very carefully. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. For, thanks for that. Um, so I, I want to move on now from the, uh, from the Dakini and the, um, and, uh, on to the topic of the, of chapter four, which is sort of, which is the chapter is entitled sacred sexuality. And it's about, uh, Sarah Conjo's own experiences as a consort and, um, about her experiences with her own consorts here, consort referring to both men and women. And in this chapter, you first address the two most common, or you begin the chapter by addressing the two most, um, common scholarly views of such practices, namely these, uh, I mean, referring to these consort practices in Tibetan Buddhism. And I was wondering if you could just first mention what these two views are and how Sarah Kondra's own experience confirms or challenges these two views. Sure. Okay. So um, the idea that sexuality could be incorporated into religious practice is anathema. It's shocking. It's destabilizing for most um, European or American interpreters. It's been interpreted as either um, some sort of sex positive, um, gynocentric is one word, like woman positive tradition on the one hand, and on the other, it's been seen as a kind of prostitution or um, extremely debasing tradition on the other. Um, it's difficult to speak of sexuality and Tantra um, so simply because Tantric traditions in South Asia are very different from each other, very diverse, and I don't want to make stereotypes about them. Um, however, in the context of Tibetan Buddhism, what you find is some scholars who think of the fact that sexuality is incorporated into very specific esoteric practices in a tiny minority of people um, who are spiritually advanced. Some people think of that as um, really as a form of religious prostitution. Um, and other people see it as finally a moment within Buddhist history in which women have an important place and an important role. Um, so, what I've noticed in, in thinking this through is that there tends to be a kind of polarization in viewpoints. Um, what I'm trying to do is to fall somewhere in the middle. Um, reading Sarah Condro presents in her life narrative some things that are um, in some sense shocking to us, like the idea that her, um, the father of her two children, Gara Gyalse, with whom she was with for about 10 years in her 20s, he gives her away to Drumeoser, and this is how she records it in her autobiography, um, without consulting her. So the idea that she, as a consort, could be traded between two men without her input um, would tend to give us the idea, oh, okay, so these are Consort practices are something in which women are being used and they're debased, right? But on mm -hmm. the other side, um, there are many instances in Sarah Condro's writing in which she is clearly benefiting from the practices that she very metaphorically describes. Um, this is not um, 
uh, very sexually explicit. In fact, it's the opposite. It's esoteric and, um, and the existence of descriptions of these consort practices may be one reason why Sarah Condo's autobiography has not been more widely um, disseminated in Tibetan until mm. um, it was published for the first time in 2009. That's a conjecture of mine. Um, but but she writes about these things very carefully, in fact. Um, and really studying what she says about consort practices, you get the feeling that it's neither, women are neither deified nor debased. There's a little bit of both or some of neither. It's, it's a complicated social world. Um, but yet one through Sarah Condra's eyes anyway, in which she manages to find a kind of confidence in herself and in who she is and in her spiritual practice. So reading this, I think we have to make what we will of it. And I <laughs> read chapter four of my book, Sacred Sexuality, and let me know what you think. <laughs> Great. So, so, so um, but before moving on, I did want to just, you know, to address the, uh, function of sexual practices or specifically in a sort of Tibetan tantric Buddhist context, um, their function in relation to the treasure revelation tradition and the actual act of uh, reveal finding and revealing treasure. Okay. So this relates in, in this chapter, I talk about the soteriological and the hermeneutical purposes for um, sexuality in Tibetan religion. And the third one is pragmatic because um, by pragmatic, I mean that these practices, consort practices, religious practices involving sexuality were very often um, used for healing purposes in Tibet. And this is not what they're, um, according to Buddhist doctrine, this is not what they're supposed to be used for. Although you find the same thing in other South Asian tantric traditions, or at least a similar thing. Um, they're all based, these three, soteriological, meaning um, the goal of attaining spiritual liberation, hermeneutical, the goal of interpreting revealed scripture, which appears in a symbolic form or pragmatic um, human health. Um, they all relate to uh, the psychophysical body, um, this idea of the subtle body or the fact that there's a system of channels in which um, a kind of vitality called um, tigle in Tibetan, bindu in Sanskrit, um, a vital essence, vital um, nuclei, I think is what I translate it in the book, um, is circulating around the body. So if you imagine this as a kind of circulation system of lymph or blood in the kind that we can dissect the body and look at. It's like that, but on a, on a psychic level. Um, and in ordinary unenlightened people, this circulatory system of the subtle body is obstructed. Um, the vitality cannot flow smoothly through the channels and this leads to illness it leads to ignorance so there are certain yogic practices um, that a meditator does individually in retreat and some in which they do through visualizations and some 
that they do with an actual human consort. In South Asian traditions, this is always a consort of what they would call the opposite sex. Um, so that is something that is being questioned in the contemporary context as well. Is this a heteronormative tradition? And in some senses, yes, it is. Um, and so these practices are aimed at increasing the pliancy or allowing, or um, you see this description of untying the knots of the channels within the circulatory system of the subtle body through particular visualizations and um, meditations. And so sexuality is one part of that. It is often interpreted symbolically or something that a meditator visualizes. Mm -hmm. So um, the vast majority of tantric practitioners never actually have a human consort with whom to do these practices. However, in the treasure tradition, there is a connection between engaging with a human consort, if you are a real treasure revealer, according to the tradition, um, and being able to produce revelation. And this is an interesting kind of homology between the generative process. Um, on one level, on the mundane level, we can talk about human reproduction, right? And on a spiritual level, this idea of, um, being inspired to write. So by releasing blockages in the energy flow of the subtle body, the treasure revealer also releases the flow of language and they're able to reveal these scriptures. And the key to this process is the dakini because dakinis are associated with bliss, with bringing the bliss that unties the knots in these channels um, and they're associated with the symbolic scripts of revelation. Um, Dakinis are associated with being the actual female consort of a male treasure revealer and most treasure revealers are male. So Dakinis and language and revelation are tightly woven together on many, many levels. What you find in Sarah Condro's writing is this, um, this, paradigm of male revealer needing female consort Dakini to reveal scripture is reversed. And it's the female treasure revealer needs a male consort in order to produce treasure. Mm -hmm. What's really fascinating to me about this in Sarah Condor's writing is twice she makes a joke, a kind of self dep I think of it as a joke, a kind of self-deprecating joke to one of her disciples saying, oh, you think I'm this great treasure revealer, but it's not true. The only thing I can produce is a son or a daughter. So she makes a direct analogy and a kind of chiding, kind of humorous way between the production of children and the production of revelation, mm -hmm. um, which only makes sense if it's spoken by a woman. Um, and it's yeah. those moments which I think intrigue me the most about Sarah Condro as a writer. Great. Thanks. So we're getting close to the end now, but I do want to just quickly touch on Chapter 5 before we uh, wrap up. And uh, in, chapter, um, in Chapter 5, while in Chapter 4 you focus a bit more on Sarah Condro's um, relationships um, with her sort of two main consorts uh, in the context of the treasure tradition and Tibetan Buddhist tantric, uh, Tibetan tantric Buddhist practice. 
but in the uh, in chapter five, you focus um, more narrowly on the relationship between Serekandro and Drime Uzer, uh, and here you're looking at the relationship not so much through the lens of Tibetan consort practices, but rather by referring to the love and affection that Serekandro felt for Drime uh, Ozer and the loss she felt upon his death. So, um. And if I've read you correctly, uh, you're saying that for Sarah Condro, um, liberation was intimately tied to her loving relationship with her consort. Um, and so I wanted to ask how you see this relationship between love and liberation um, in the in the case of Sarah Condro as uh, sort of, well, just how, how you see that relationship and also how you see that re- relationship challenging are and perhaps previous Western assumptions about uh, tantric Buddhism. Um, and also, <laughs> sorry, this is becoming a long question, but also to what extent is she sort of following a previous model in this case? And to what extent is she departing from that previous model? And this, of course, is where the, uh, or I assume where the title of the book comes from, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so if I forget certain parts of that question, please remind me and prod me as I go forward. But okay. uh, the fifth chapter of this book, um, Love Between Method and Insight, in some sense is making a claim that goes against the typical understanding of Tantra, of mm-hmm. Buddhist Tantra or of Hindu Tantra. Um, and that is, we we all can agree that either on a symbolic level or somehow metaphoric level or even literal level, um, certain tantric practices involve sexuality. Mm-hmm. But there has been an assumption um, that tantric practices don't involve any kind of intimacy that we would refer to as love, that the process is one of one consort utilizing the other consort for spiritual gain, which occurs within an individual. Um, So it's not a sort of celebration of the joy of union as much as it is using sexual union to transmute mundane desire into bliss, into spiritual bliss, useful on the path to awakening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not trying to say, oh, no, love really is a really important part of Tantra. I'm rather saying, in some cases, human intimacy in various forms seems to have also been a part of that path. So the title of the book, Love and Liberation, is to try to say that we can read Sarah Condro's biographical and autobiographical writings as a very traditional um, story of her and Dreamyoser's spiritual liberation, and that that is an absolutely valid reading. And the sort of less typical thing I'm trying to say is that we can also read these as a kind of love story between um, a man and a woman. And I think they're both. And I think we can both hold both of these readings without um, needing to reject one or the other. So that's what I try to do in the fifth chapter is to explain, um, in order to make a claim that Sarah Condro had a loving relationship with Dreamyosar, we need to get down to the nuts and bolts of this. What do I mean by love? What is love, right? And if you open up this book, what is love? Um, you end up in 
just a rabbit hole of extensive references to the history of love, the history of romantic love. Is love a human universal? Is it a biological imperative? Is it related to human reproduction? Um, or is it a, um, a literary phenomena that emerges um, out of the courtly culture of medieval Europe and has a very specific etymology through um, European literary sources um, shifting into our modern context. So then is it culturally specific somehow to the European or to Western culture? Um, I want to say neither of those things. I want to say, I'm not ready to say love is a kind of human universal, and here we see it in Tantra as well. Nor am I ready to say love has a Eurocentric genealogy and people who didn't weren't influenced directly by European literature and culture didn't have romantic love. I'm not ready to go there either. I'm trying to make a claim that there's a certain form of love that you can see through the words, through the terms, I call them the terms of endearment, that Sarah Kondo used to render her intimate relationship with Jumeoser into words for the record, for the purpose of her disciples, um, for the purpose of preserving her lineage, which is one of the reasons why people wrote biographies and autobiographies in Tibetan literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to do that carefully to show the different um, emotion words, to use Barbara Rosenwein's word for that. Um, she has studied the history of sentiment in medieval European sources, and I find her work inspiring in this. Um, so it's a new topic. In Tibetan studies, we have the love songs of the sixth Dalai Lama. They've mm-hmm. received attention and critical attention and scholarship. But the idea of of looking at love in Tibetan literature or in Tibetan society through anthropological works and and such is still new. So I'm eager for new scholarship to come and join this process process and and see what we can find. Great. Thanks. Well, we've come to uh, more or less to the end. Um, I should mention for listeners that, you know, we didn't, we've only scratched the surfaces in in this interview and, um, you, the book contains at over, well, the whole thing's about 422 pages, about 324, which is the uh, main text. And uh, you in, have some very nice um, descriptions of um, Lhasa of the period, of the late 19th century Lhasa and Golok at the time when Sarah Kondra lived there. And also a lot of translation in this book. Um, very um, uh, fascinating text. Um Sarah Kondo's autobiography, and um, so there's a lot of translation there to read. As a very final question, I wanted to ask if there's any anything that you're working on at the moment. Uh, sure. Okay. So about the translation in the text, I know that's not your exact question, but I wanted no, no, to please. one thing about that because it's something I'm working on at the moment. Um, uh, I included block translations to sort of give voice to what I was analyzing in um, in Love and Liberation, but I plan to publish a complete annotated translation of Sarah Condro's autobiography oh, as a separate book. Um, that's under contract with Columbia University Press right now. It will take a couple more years for me to finish that. It's a very long work, and that's why it had to be in a separate book. Um, I think it's important because... 
um, for readers to be able to engage with Sarah Condor's writing as directly as possible mm-hmm. um, and get a sense of its feel without the interference of the scholarly voice coming in um, as often as it does in Love and Liberation. So Love and Liberation is really part of a, a two-part book series. The first is the scholarly analysis, and the second is the translation in its um, complete form. So that's coming up, um, and I'm working on that. And um, in general, I'm also interested in continuing the study of the history of emotion in Tibetan literature. Um, and another project that is sort of different, using different sources, but on the same sort of theme of looking at desire and the way desire is transmuted into bliss in many of these Tibetan traditions. Um, I'm studying the um, the 19th century um monastic polymath scholar Ju Mipom, another Tibetan writer, but instead of Sarah Kondro, who was a um, non-monastic woman, um, Ju Mipom was a lifelong monastic, and um, he wrote a very fascinating text called Treaties on Passion, um, De Petenche, which is one of the sources that a later um, very famous Tibetan intellectual, Gendun Shobel, used in his um, text of the same um, of the same title, De Petenche. And so, what these are are Tibetan um, translations of the Indian genre of Kama Shastra, the most famous uh, being the Kama Sutra, mm-hmm. um, and. In some sense, they make no sense in the context of Tibetan Buddhism because the pursuit of pleasure for itself, um, for its own sake, is not consonant with the Tibetan religious tradition in which pleasure needs to be transmuted to a kind of force leading to enlightenment. And so what I'm looking at is how these Tibetan authors incorporate um, this earlier tradition of Indian texts, which are about the pursuit of pleasure, how they cast that in a tantric light, um, applying it to their religious imperatives. So that's my current fascination. Great. Well, thanks so much. Um, and we'll uh, we'll look forward to the... Uh, to the full translation of the autobiography in uh, two, three years down the <laughs> down the road here. Um, okay, well, I just want to thank you again for speaking with me today and also to thank our listeners for tuning in. That's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next thank time. You.